forgot my little clicker. <laughs> okay, good morning, everyone. Before we do, uh, express our gratitude from on behalf of my family and I to all the locals here for all of your generosity and hospitality that you've extended to us. We appreciate all that you do to, to put on a Bible school. We know what kind of work it takes, so we'd like to, again, thank you for all your work and, and, and doing this for us. It truly is a blessing, as uh, Brother Roger brought up, or um, uh, Robert Miller a few years ago, he was talking about it being a haven of rest, and isn't it truly a haven of rest, a wonderful place for us to be able to come and spend the week. I'm looking forward to our study in Joel this week. As I was telling some of you as I'm talking uh, this week, we, uh, I wasn't really familiar with Joel per se as, as far as studying the whole book. And as my introduction, I brought out how we are uh, prone to pull out just a few verses that we're real familiar with out of Joel, like the third chapter, we might say. Uh, but we'll see as we go through this week how it all, Joel forms this picture in our mind of, uh, of the latter days. And uh, what we're going to do is do our best to apply this to us as, as following along in our theme this week and see how Joel's message can affect us in the latter days as, as spiritual Israel. When, we, uh, when I put the, the notes together, um, I'm not sure is the microphone okay there, but okay. When I put the notes together, I used uh, mainly Eureka Volume 1, a, uh, a book here called Joel, by the Christadelphian Scripture Study Service. I'm not sure if you all have that one. Uh, exposition of, of Daniel and uh, some notes out of the uh, Companion Bible. So that's kind of where I got a lot of our notes and things. The study in Joel takes us from the days of Josiah and Yahweh's people down to our day. And that's kind of what I wanted to focus on throughout the week is our day. How can we focus, how can we use the words of Joel and apply them to us. And of course, it's easy when we consider us as natural, as, as spiritual Israel, as God's people, trying to uh, uh, form this body of believers, and of course, definitely in the latter days. We bring this down to our day, and then as Joel progresses, we see the near future, and how he will redeem both natural and spiritual Israel in the age to come. And every part of the book, brethren, can be related to us modern lesson for the people of Yahweh. I want to first look at the broad theme of, of the whole book, um, not necessarily the whole book today, but, but the first chapter. We'll, we'll kind of look at the broad theme of it, see where he's going with it, pull out some verses that we see will capture our attention first of all, and then we'll go back in kind of a verse-by-verse exposition and, uh, and bring it out and see how some of these things affect us and how important they are in our day. One of the things I wanted us to, to do first is look at that. So if you're not in Joel now, go ahead and open your Bibles over there to Joel. And we're reading there in the first chapter where it says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. That which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. And that which the locust hath left, hath the cankerworm eaten. And that which the cankerworm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep, and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up unto my land strong, and without number, 
whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Lament like a virgin, girded with sackcloth, for the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. The field is wasted and mourneth, for the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, and the oil languisheth. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen, howl, O ye vine dressers, for the weed and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree languisheth. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree, the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. Howl, ye ministers of the altar, come lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. For the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Sanctify ye a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God, and cry, cry unto the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meat cut off before your eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed is rotten under their clods, and the garners are laid desolate, and the barns are broken down, and the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan, and the herds of cattle are perplexed? Because they have no pasture, yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. O Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of water are dried up, and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So we see this this picture here that he starts out with in Joel, the first chapter. We see this as a warning spoken with real urgency. We can see that as we read through it. It's 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 very it, it has a lot of emotion in it, and uh, and we'll see why as we go on. Look at verse 15. Alas, or as the complete Jewish Bible renders it, oh no, for the day, for the day of Yahweh is at hand. We see he's saying to us that the time is short. And so, brethren, it's true of our day as never before, and certainly it was true of theirs as well. At this point, they were living in a time of prosperity. Remember, we are at the end of the days of Josiah. There was fullness of bread and idleness. Does this sound familiar? The result was they were asleep. Could this be said of our day? Of course. But think about what's left for us over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Remember there, <clears throat> got ahead of myself here. 1 Thessalonians 5, he talks about how he comes as a thief and he comes suddenly, or as the word means, quickly. And so, it also could be rendered already upon us, giving us the connotation of coming unexpectedly or unforeseen, and then there it is. Well, the same thing we see here in chapter 1 of Joel is a passionate appeal to Yahweh's people of that day as much as it is to us to be ready to be watching, to be prepared. 
And so look at verse 6. What is verse 6 telling us? For a nation has come up upon my land strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion and hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. Here he speaks of this power coming upon that land that was unstoppable and irreversible in its consequences and what it would have on the land. It's likened in verse 4 as to this locust plague as he continues on. That which the palmer worm, the locust, the canker worm, and the caterpillar had all eaten, devastating the land. Nothing was left. And so it's been decimated and under uh, utter total Devastation had taken place, as outlined in these, by these consuming insects. These stages of invasion are all typical of the Babylonian invasions on the land, as we'll get to. Verse 7 says he's completely destroyed the vine and the fig tree. He has laid my vine waste, barked my fig tree. This is where he's speaking of Israel, the people of God, throughout Throughout Scripture, often the vine and the fig tree are always referred to as God's people, Israel. We see this devastation. We'll get to this in just a moment. We see some locust plague examples. I wanted to read one of these just to kind of give you an idea that he has in this book here. It was kind of interesting. I'm not really familiar with locust plagues. Sometimes in New Mexico we have outbreaks of flying ants, flying ants, and they can be kind of, kind of devastating too. Not to the crops, but to people, for sure. So I kind of know how that works. But anyway, he has an example here in the book, and this is from the book entitled The Land and the Book by Thompson. And he says, Early in the spring, the locusts appeared in considerable numbers along the seacoasts and on the lower spurs of the Lebanon range. They did no great injury at the time, having only laid their eggs and immediately disappearing. Towards the end of May, we heard that thousands of young locusts were on their march up the valley towards our village. We accordingly went forth to meet them, hoping to stop their progress, or at least turn aside the line of march. The endeavor was useless. I had often passed through clouds of flying locusts, but these were now confronted without these were now confronted being without wings and about the size of a full-grown grasshopper which they closely resembled in appearance and behavior. But their number was astounding. The whole face of the mountain was black with them. On they came like a disciplined army. We dug trenches and kindled fires and beat and burned to death heaps and heaps. But the effort was utterly useless. They charged up the mountainside and climbed over rocks, walls, ditches, and hedges. Those behind all coming up and passing over the masses that had already been killed. For some days they continued to pass on towards the east until finally only a few stragglers of the mighty host were left behind. Whilst on the march, they consumed everything green with wondrous eagerness and expedition. The noise made by them in marching and foraging was like that of a heavy shower falling on a distant forest. And then he continues on with another example. So we see this, that Yahweh used this example of locust for a reason. And as we continue through this, we'll see exactly why. The locust plague, for example, he uses numbers in the, uh, uh, in the book to kind of give us uh, an idea of, of how many there were. And he was talking about, in this particular example, how they had come through and, and decimated the, the land. 
And the reason why is because within this certain area, uh, there was roughly four, 42 million tons or 42,000 million tons or 42 billion uh, insects, four, uh, 24 trillion insects. So you can imagine this, this swarm and how it would just take over and how to them it seemed very unstoppable. Uh, it was just uh, like a cloud. And as we see, we go through Joel, again, it's described in the same way. Uh, and, and again, in studying that and reading it, I just I couldn't comprehend having that many insects around me. There was a sister in our ecclesia that was shivering as we were talking about this before. Just think about all that. And so this is also used later, um, this invading army then, we see is used later, symbolic of this lion that we read already. And this lion, we know, has represented the Babylonian power. But bringing it down to the latter day, the latter day Babylonian power, or lion power, I should say, excuse me, would be this uh, Russian invader that comes in in the last, the Gugian, that we'll talk about in the last chapter. This lion bearing its teeth. And we know how Russia, uh, how it kind of treats its people and how it's treated some surrounding nations in the past. For example, we see how they've treated Georgia when they invaded the land and the people there and how, how they decimated it. Uh, they had no thought for the people. They went in uh, in Chechnya the same way and killed thousands of people. And, uh, of course, all of this wasn't very, very popular. It wasn't well known in the newspapers. But uh, in going back through and, and doing a little research, you see how, how they treated those people was very much... Uh, like we see here, how they will in the latter days. Let's consider again uh, a quote, Brother Thomas, from um, Exposition of Daniel. He said, The signs of times are manifest for the benefit of those who understand and believe the word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom. And of course, this is us, isn't it? The wise shall understand, but not the world. They won't understand. Let the faithful then watch, for when the war against the Muslims breaks forth to the complete expiration of its dominion, he comes as a storm from the north, sounding in the expecting ear, Behold, I come as a thief. So he was, he was warning the brethren at that time to be aware of the world, the things that are happening around us. We see the signs of what's happening, our modern examples that we have, we'll get to in a moment as well. All of the different things that are happening, not only in this country, but in the Middle East and in Europe. We see this as leading up to a time when Europe will be ruled by the one, the autocrat, the Russian, ruling as a dictator. The framework is now being laid for the acceptance of those ideas in Europe. Europe will be united with Russia under its dominion. And so, the locust plague then will sweep down across this pleasant land, through the land of Israel, and lay it waste. Germany, Austria, French, France, all of the, those, those nations that are mentioned as allied with, with the Gogian and the Ezekiel 38 that we'll get to. We see how they'll come down over this land, allied with one who rules as the former have. Think about how uh, Lenin and Hitler uh, took over the people and the land in their day. And so will this new Russian leader be when his time comes. And we see this beginning, don't we? We see them setting up the framework for what's about to happen. Let's look at verse 5 for just a moment. You see in verse 5 he says, 
Awake, ye drunkards, and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. He's talking to his people here, not that, not that, that, that we, uh, we, are, we might say, are drunkards, as they were referred to then, but what he's saying through the prophet to them was an appeal to awake in the days of Josiah. Be alert and be sober. They had typically fallen, to a, fallen into a drunken stupor, and they weren't aware of what was taking place, the state of their country and the people that lived there. Isn't this exactly what Christ reminded his brethren of in Matthew 24 when he said, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. He's talking to his brethren who were living in the days just prior to his return. Is it going to be 2011? We hope and pray. In Noah's day, they were eating and drinking, socializing, living it up from one day to the next. No concern for Yahweh or what he was doing or what they could be doing that was worthwhile. What they could be doing that was worthwhile. They were enjoying themselves up until the very day that Noah entered into the ark, weren't they? They were swept away, and so will it be at the coming of the great day of the Son of Man. And this is what we're talking about in Joel. Wake up. See what's happening. Be on guard. Be alert. Be aware. Therefore, watch. Joel says the same as Christ. Be watching. Be prepared. Luke 21, verse 34, Jesus says, watch, says watching isn't optional. We have to be watching and paying attention to be on guard. And don't let your minds be dulled by this life, by worldly influences, by the anxieties of our life. Isn't that where we're at? Doesn't our economic situation in this, in this nation, don't we see the anxieties of this life setting in in so many different ways? Is it affecting us? Well, sure it is. This is what he's talking about when he speaks of the drunkenness that we can be caught up in. Things that take our mind from serious matters, like the truth, and doing things that make a difference, and working for him in the Lord's vineyard. These things that should be so precious to us. Anxieties about our livelihood. These are what can take us away, lest that day should come upon you suddenly, like a snare, he says, like a trap, unexpected, in a moment, and you're gone. He wants us to prepare for that and be awake. And he gives us signs and instructions to prepare us if we will pay attention. He is saying, be on watch and pray and pray that you may have the strength to escape or be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand in the presence of the Son of Man. This was his warning to those in the latter days. And can't we see the same in comparison to Joel and his message to us as well. What he's saying to them is genuine. They should be genuine in worship and in devotion. And then this chapter in Joel is a call, a call to sincere, genuine worship before it's too late. Before it's too late. Verse 13 and 14. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests, Howl, ye ministers of the altar, come and lie all night in sackcloth, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Think of the impact that this had on the nation. This to them was 
supposed to be the focal point of their life, worship, worshiping the Almighty. And now it was cut off. Verse 14 shows us the same passionate appeal. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, into the house of the Lord your God, and cry unto the Lord. A passionate appeal to the brethren, to Israel. Do we see the urgency in our day as well? Do we really believe, do we really believe that the kingdom is coming and will change this world? Well, of course we do. We see the things going around us. We know that it can't continue as it is. But are we really concerned about eternity and the next 500 years of our life? Or are we more concerned and preoccupied with the urgency, emergencies of today and tomorrow? Our houses, our jobs, our possessions, these are all important, but they must be kept in perspective. This is where Israel stood in Joel's day, and Joel pleads for a genuine, heartfelt self-examination of each of them on a personal level and to see where they stood with their God. This had to be in store for Yahweh's people. Joel begins the chapter, though, with a wonderful promise, and as we look into the name of Joel and Pethuel, we can see this. Joel 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of of Pethuel. And it's interesting when we look into the name. The name is a combination of two words, Yahweh El, or El. He who will be manifest in power. What a very dramatic name, because it comes at the beginning of a chapter where we know that this describes even Yahweh himself over in Ezekiel or Exodus 34. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and mercy, goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. We have here, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, Ael, or yud Hey vav Hey, yahweh Ale, and we see it shortened to the, to the name Joel. Joel. So now looking in, at visiting the iniquities of the Father. See, we see this here in Ezekiel, or I keep seeing Ezekiel, but Exodus 34. Um, we'll get to Ezekiel in just a moment, but the, the same thing is mentioned here as we see over in Joel chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land, Hath this been in the days, in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Then he says, tell your children of it, let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. We have the same comparison here, don't we, as we saw in Exodus. The same generations. And so he's saying to us, remember, remember Yahweh El, he who will be manifest in power. Remember him because he's always true to his word. True to his word. True to his character. Tell it to the generations following thee. And if his, if his people live in accordance to his divine will, repentance, repent and seek him, then he promises to show mercy. And there's no, no doubt about that. He is a God of mercy and love, as he mentions here in Exodus. But if the people live it up as to ignore Joel's warning, 
or the warnings of Christ, then the other aspect could be, could be true as well. And we'll see that as we go through Joel, the aspect of severity in judgment. And so we see the offer mentioned here to his people to seek his mercy while there is time. And so Joel, again, the name Joel, it's interesting in another aspect as well, because here we have the name Elijah in there too. We can compare this. The name Elijah reversed is Joel, Yahweh, Ael, and Ael, Yahweh. We put this together in understanding, thinking about Elijah and his impact, his, his role that he had with Israel. Wasn't it Elijah who went down to Sinai? Remember? He went to the same place where Exodus 34 had taken place many years before. He found that Yahweh truly <clears throat> was mighty indeed and magnificent in power. But think about the account. As he was not really found in the blood and the fire and the pillar of smoke, but he was found there first and foremost in the still, small voice. He is a God of mercy and grace who extends this to all those who love his word and demonstrate it in their life. And so we see this appeal to listen through his grace and mercy, as is also revealed in the name of Joel's father, Pethuel. Pethuel. And that's interesting because this means it comes from the root word petha, to open or to make room. Therefore, Pethuel means to open the mind to ail. We can compare this to Isaiah 50 and 5, of opening our mind unto God, unto Yahweh. And so by placing the names together, we learn that he who will be manifest in power will open the ears or open the mind of his people. Of his people. This describes exactly the purpose of Joel's message to his people in that day. To open their ears, to open their hearts, the minds of his people, and to repent. Open their mind to their God, who was their strength. And no one else, no other nation could deliver them from what was about to happen. He immediately goes on in verse 2, reading that again. He says, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants. When we consider this, we see that it reminds us of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, where he says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, all thy soul, and all thy might. So we see the word here is from the Hebrew word shama. And give ear means to broaden the ear or to bring it out and listen acutely. <clears throat> this, what he's asking them here to do is, is to listen. But to listen to what? Well, of course, it's his message of this impending judgment and what they should do to prepare. The particular message in the book of Joel is different than most prophecies in that the message is actually originally written in poetry. And poetry is different than prose. We know prose is, is ordinary writing. Prose expresses thought and is addressed to the mind, and it deals with facts. But poetry is expressing feelings and is addressed 
to the heart, to our emotions. And this is where he felt he could have the most impact on Israel. The message then in Hebrew poetry is written to appeal to the hearts of his people, a passionate message to implore them to change. And the impending judgment was now upon them. So then in verse 3 and 4, Joel describes this locust plague as we see coming down. Tell your children of all that's about to happen. And the word tell means to score with a mark. To score with a mark. Or to keep a tally or a record. And so it portrays the fact that these events would be scored or marked on the Jewish people like an indelible scar for generation after generation. Typically in Scripture, in the, it, it, it's the memory of deliverance we see that is handed down from generation to generation, from father to son. But here it's the memory of this unprecedented disaster that was about to take place in Israel that Joel was, was telling them to pass down. And the reason why is because they were supposed to learn from their history, weren't they? They were supposed to learn from the experiences that they had already lived through. So pass on this, this, uh, this terrible thing that was about to happen. So we read the account then in Ezra as well. Ezra mentions this. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings, our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face, as it is this day. So he proclaimed this again and continued to try to have the people in remembrance of what was taking place. And so to reconfirm this point, we again see the generations mentioned in verse 2 and 3. Joel deliberately introduces this idea to bring the people's mind back to a time when the name Yahweh El was proclaimed. And so in doing this, he wants to emphasize one particular aspect of the character of Yahweh, and that is his severity. His severity. He was about to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children and to the third and fourth generations. So let's consider now the time of Joel's message. We better understand the time period of Joel when we compare this to the book of Zephaniah. Turn over to Zephaniah with me. And in Zephaniah 1, we have a particular verse that we see throughout Scripture that, that often occurs in several different prophecies. But it brings to mind just exactly what, what we see here as far as the time period. Verse 1, the word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So plainly we see then exactly when Zephaniah was written. Well, back in Joel, we just considered these verses. Is there ever a verse that says, written in the days of... There's not, is there? But as we go through Zephaniah, we can kind of pick a few verses out, and we see the incredible resemblance between the two. How about here in verse 2? I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. Does it sound like a locust plague? And I will consume man and beast and consume the fowls of the heavens and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. 
I will stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. How about on down? Uh, verse 7. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Remember Joel? Alas, alas. We continue on. Verse 11. Howl ye inhabitants of Mektish, for all the merchant people are cut down, and they that bear silver are cut off. Howl. Again, the same terminology or language that we see in Joel. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hath greatly, even the voice, and I'm sorry, hasteneth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. Again, something we see throughout Joel. Verse 17, and I will bring distress upon men, that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust. Neither their silver nor gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. And as you continue down in your study in Zephaniah, you can see many more parallels. So as we do this, we see that the parallel, the basis of the parallels between the two prophets is remarkable. They use the same terminology uh, very often. And it's clear that they are speaking of the same events, probably citing each other's writings. Zephaniah seems to be written, and then Joel but written very close to each other. We know this because the only difference really between the two prophecies is their relation to the day of Yahweh. Zephaniah the prophet was within the city. He sees the day is fast approaching, like we just read, but not yet happening. And so from this standpoint, he predicts the destruction of the land. Joel, on the other hand, is already experiencing the effects of that day and is seeing the land already being devastated. Joel picks up the terminology of Zephaniah by using the same words again, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. He pleads with the people to voluntarily gather themselves, but Joel commands it. Sanctify and call. Gird yourselves, he says, lament ye priests. This was a direct commandment for them to do. Joel seemed to be a subtle, uh, uh, just a, a subtle uh, mention that we should do this, that, that, that it's coming, but nothing as, uh, as impending as Joel's was. So by this, then, we conclude that Joel prophesied just a short time after Zephaniah, and their messages blend into one harmonious warning and give the prophecy of Joel a certain tone in which these pressing and important issues must be heard now. They must be. This was something that was very, very important. Again, it's interesting then to consider that Joel's prophecy is not specifically determined by a specific verse as the time, as we saw in Zephaniah 1. And this is probably for a specific reason. We understand that God wants us to know that the word of prophecy could be applied to a similar time in which this state of affairs arose. Remember the time of complacency, um, the time of ease and plenty of uh, plenty, everything they had, the days of Josiah. But it also could refer to the days of the Greeks or the Romans, A.D. 70, or the time of Armageddon. Certainly today we can recognize some of the same characteristics that we've mentioned here. And so in this lesson, he that has ears to hear, 
should pay attention to the words of Joel in whatever time they live in. But as we learn from Zephaniah, it does have a specific date. The day of Yahweh was at hand. And it was written during a time when a massive invasion was being threatened, as we see the locust and the lion mentioned later in this first chapter. This is mentioned as destroying the temple worship, as we see in verse 13 of Joel chapter 1. Again, we read that before. Gird yourselves and lament. How, ye ministers of the altar, come lie all night in sackcloth, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. All of this change was taking place. The invader is likened to this lion mentioned in verse 6. Think of Jeremiah 50 and 17, where they're spoken, where Babylon is spoken of as this great lion as well. We know this already from our studies in Daniel, don't we? In the seventh chapter of Daniel. Those animals that came out of the sea, the first uh, likened to a lion referred to as the Babylonians. But Joel also emphasizes this by using the locust plague also uh, of the Babylonians. And so this makes it clear to us that the invasion is a Babylonian invasion of the land, a Babylonian invasion. And not only a natural disaster, but it was political as well. There's no mention of the ten northern tribes now, so it's after the Assyrian invasion, wasn't it? And we see by the description that there had never been another one like it, so it's different than the Assyrians. Verse 2 tells us that even in the days of your fathers, so never had they experienced anything like this, and it would continue for three generations after them. So think about it in the days of Josiah, with the end of his reign and as the nation went into captivity, they remained in Babylon for 70 years, didn't they? And it shows to us that Josiah reigned 31 years, and then a period of about 70 years through to the time of the Medo-Persian reign, when the Babylonians were conquered by them. And the Jews were then allowed to return <clears throat> to their land. So this wasn't during the time of peace and security during Josiah's reign. It was later, as Judah fell away from Yahweh. They had not yet experienced such a change in their life as this. What a tragic change it was, but it was necessary in changing their hearts. It came in four invasions into the land. Gradually and systematically, the nation was taken into captivity that would last roughly a further two generations after this initial invasion. And so the time is clear. We know roughly when the, when the prophecy took place. And we begin to see this progression in verse 4. Again, we'll read that one more time. <clears throat> that which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten, the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. This progression. And so we ask ourselves, well, what are these insects all about? And it's about this invasion, like we mentioned earlier. The Lord used the impact of these insects to, to, to teach us a lesson and to show uh, what an impact these invading armies would have on the land. The devastation that would come upon the land because of a stubborn and selfish nation fulfilled by the destructive nature of this locust swarm. Let's look at this just for a moment. These specific insects, the palmer worm, comes from this word gazam, meaning to cut off 
a lopper, a shearer, mainly devastating the fig trees and the vines. So the larger branches and things, these must have been a more sturdy insect. The locust was a swarmer. So they were smaller, but there was lots of them. The canker worm was a devourer. So they were small as well, but they left very little behind. And then the caterpillar was slow and precise and lots of them as well. So anything that was left behind, they completely finished off. It systematically began by cutting off, by swarming across the land, leaving almost nothing. And if anything was left, it was finished off totally by the final swarm. There are many different insects which do this uh, similarly, but none of them to this magnitude, which is why Yahweh used this example. Put ourselves in their day when they didn't go to grocery stores. They didn't go over to the mall to get things. They relied on Yahweh to give them rain and warmth and good soil in order to produce food, to feed their, their families, to produce their crops. Their livelihood was at stake. And this would be their worst nightmare ever as a nation. Yahweh used these insects mainly because of the names, because of what it did. The effects of the invading armies would be the same. Therefore, the lesson has a much greater impact when described by these individual insects relating to different stages of destruction. Joel therefore sees the first wave coming through the lopper the branches and trees are, are taken off. <clears throat> the second wave just keeps on advancing and appears to increase at an unbelievable rate, increasing its destructive abilities as it, as it multiplied. And after this, the third wave comes tumbling over the ground, licking up the crops and the vegetation, wiping out any semblance of greenery. Then finally, the fourth and final invasion brings the finisher, which finishes off anything that was left. What a frightening sight Joel depicts. So it seems that there's a more ominous point to this locust invasion in prophecy as well. In chapter 2, verse 25, they're described as Yahweh's great army. Let's look at that. Verse 25, And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army, which I sent among you. So we'll keep that in mind as we go through this. But we see chapter 1, 6, and 7 likens the locust to one particular nation, Yahweh's great army, but it is one particular nation which was about to devour and completely devastate the Israel tree. The same analogy is described further in detail uh, through this chapter, uh, through this second chapter, where similarly between the invader and the locust, it presents a more vivid image that only scriptures like this can give us as we see this impending judgment. We determine here that this northern army is the army of Babylon, the Babylonians. Jeremiah 5, 15-17 says, Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from far, O house of Israel, saith Yahweh. It is a mighty nation, a nation whose language thou knowest not. Their quiver is an open sepulcher. They are all mighty men. And they shall eat up thine harvest and thy bread, which thy sons and thy daughters should eat. They shall eat up thy flocks and thy herds. They shall eat up thy vines and thy fig trees. Doesn't this sound exactly like what we're describing here in Joel? So again, let's consider these four invasions. And let's look at this now from a more 
historical perspective. We see that in, in B.C. 606, the land was devastated. Goodness was exploited. King of Babylon came through. Everything was exploited, including the people. Remember, Daniel and his friends were carried away to become slaves in the king's house in Babylon. We see this in 2 Kings 24 and 1. The second invasion, B.C. 597. The nation rebelled against, again, as recorded in 2 Kings 24. And on that occasion, even more devastation was exacted upon Israel. Slowly and surely, more and more. Now we have more skilled workers taken into captivity. Over 3,000. In B.C. 589, they rebelled again. The devourer, we might say, came through. And the temple wasn't destroyed yet. But the princes and the craftsmen were taken, as we see in 2 Kings 24. And then so to wrap this up, we see in B.C. 586, they invaded again. And now they destroyed the temple and finished off everything that was was of any value, leaving only a very small remnant, 2 Kings 25, verse 1 through 28. So here we have these four invasions of the Babylonians upon Judah. And as we continue, tomorrow we'll pick up the same, the same time frame here. And we'll compare this to the uh, image, Daniel's image, and how the decimation of the land and God's people can be applied to that as well. So tomorrow we'll pick up with that and finish up chapter 1.